what we always do is we do welcome to artwork play and then describe what the podcast is for in glib or sardonic terms so do you want to or very or or just plainly descriptive i mean it you, sounds you, like you like already artwork. did it so <laughs> that <was> it. that's true <laughs> our job yeah. here is done <laughs> indeed i like it <laughs> Today we're interviewing Sagan Yi, who is an artist and game developer, as well as the executive director at Toronto's Hand Eye Society, a video game arts organization. Hi Sagan, it's so great to have you on the pod. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, I thought I would just ask you, uh, start with start with Hand Eye Society. What is the Hand Eye Society? Could you tell me more about that? <laughs> yeah, so the, so Hand Eye Society is, a, as you said, a video game arts organization. I guess what makes it unique is it is a video game arts nonprofit. So it's pretty institutionalized at this point. Uh, we've it was uh, founded in 2009 by a group of multidisciplinary artists who were interested in making games as a form of creative expression rather than a create uh, rather than a commercial product. So that was kind of the genesis um, for the organization, and that's kind of been our mandate still even to this day. Like we celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, last year, but there still seems to be the need to kind of separate video games from the public preconception of them as like a completely commercialized product. And yeah, and so we, we explore uh, video games as art, we showcase them, we try to find interesting artists uh, and like broaden the public's perception of games by um, exposing them to those artists. Because a lot of, there's a lot of really amazing work out there that um, isn't very mainstream. Um, and yeah, that's what we do. Workshops, ex exhibitions. Uh, we don't have a physical location, so we really just bop around the city and uh, cuckoo, kind of like a cuckoo, and just nest in other people's venues, uh, which is sort of an interesting model that's worked really well for us over the years. When you started at Hand Eye Society, how long had it already existed before, before that? Um, and then before Hand Eye Society, did anything else exist that was like it in Toronto? Yeah, so there, the genesis of Hand Eye Society, as I have been told through basically oral history, <laughs> is the, mm. or the original co-founders like uh, Jim Monroe, Mayor Shepard from MetaNet, uh, Miguel Sternberg from Spooky Squid Games. Um, so a bunch of these people that were really active in the in the growing indie game scene at the time. Um, they were they had already been kind of making things together and doing activities that would later for, sort of form the basis for what Hand Eye Society would eventually become. So they had this thing called the Artsy Games Incubators, which uh, Jim, whose background was in writing, uh, he's like a published or uh, a published author, and then um, had sort sort of kind of a self publishing media mini empire. Um, came up with this idea to make a have a collective of people making games based around a, a writer's circle kind of a model. So really just people getting together once a week uh, for six weeks and trying to make a small game in those six weeks. So kind of like an extended game jam, but without the kind of like techie hackathon um, aspect you get with a lot of game jams. Like it really was more of like an artistic process. That's cool. uh, and yeah, so that that was a really fertile ground, I think, uh, for the the mandate of of the when they decide when they decided you you know this should be more than just like a loose bunch of artists doing stuff um they decided to make it to incorporate it as a nonprofit so they called it hand eye society uh, and then they incorporated in 2009 and um started forming pretty quickly after that started forming uh, relationships with other more established arts organizations around the city uh like tiff um and toronto comic arts festival hmm. Um, we've been doing stuff with InterAccess, the AGO, uh, in different capacities. Um, so that's kind of what the, uh, the legitimacy, I think of institutionalizing that spirit, right. um, really gave it a hook into the Canadian arts infrastructure that I think was, is what makes hand-eye society unique amongst all the sort of international video game arts groups uh, that exist and I think contributed to the sustainability and longevity of the organization as well. Well, Kat was saying that even when they go abroad, 
that people will mention hand-eye society. So you've obviously left some kind of, uh, you know, uh, you've, you've left your mark. <laughs> You're creating ripples in the international ponds. Yeah, there's... It's it's on record. Like we had even some quotes on our website. I don't know if they're still there, but um, from leaders in other gaming arts organizations that explicitly said that hand eye society was like a big influence in the international scene for that model. Huh. Um, and yeah, so and then we all sort of just like influenced each other and inspired each other, and like it really is an international community, which makes sense for the type of medium that video games are they're very technologically mediated and a lot of the people involved with right. video games came of age with the internet so right. everyone's very used to being connected in this certain way um almost almost detrimentally so in some aspects when i look at other art scenes uh in toronto that are more like regional um mm. like the their work is more um drawing from the background of the people in a certain place you know it has a certain right. feel of people in a place that i think like a lot of games lack where the games are trying to like get away from you know was this made in saskatchewan was this made <laughs> <And> like <laughs> right. the, there's not that like sort of um personal stamp that i wish more games would go for um uh, that's linked to geography right. um so that's kind of a some weird, some weird aspects of video games that I think are a little bit different from other disciplines. <laughs> yeah, that's a big the like the game scene in um, Regina here. The big successes have been, uh, or the not big successes. The mo the games that uh, we've seen that we've seen that are most prominent in the like artsy indie game scene are about uh, Regina specifically one being a tour of the cemetery and I then the other the other <laughs> is um uh Queen City Chaos which is like a fighting game that takes place in Regina with yeah, the, that's uh, uh, Regina Cemetery Tours uh is the name of the cemetery game yes mm -hmm. yeah yeah, one of the early examples of a game that I really liked that came out of early hand eye society people was Benjamin Rivers um Oh, it's called. It's just called Snow, and it's a slice of life game that I think was made in Game Maker or something. Um, but it's like sort of a pixel art feel, and you're just a young woman with low self esteem <laughs> who's just going about her day, trying to going to. She works at a bookstore on Queen Street West, which was in the middle of like huge wave of gentrification. Um, so that game was made in 2008, and that bookstore was based on a specific bookstore that used to exist there and real like right after the game came out i think it closed pretty quickly Ooh. after that <laughs> so it's really a commentary Whoa. on like how queen street west was changing um through the through the lens of this kind of millennial young person <laughs> and so like i have a lot of feels for that for that game <laughs> also something unique uh for video game as a medium uh functioning expressly as kind of like a an archive yeah, but yeah, and I that's what I mean about like linking it to right, ge yeah. geographical or physical aspects of the environment is like a video game is like a great way to to re-experience or to, you know, portray a place as it used to be um and that one in particular, especially like with Toronto because you know, every every time I go away for a couple of weeks and come back, something on my street is, is different. Like a store is closed and another one has taken its place and it's just like flickering in and out of existence. And I, I might even take a cue from Snow and make a game where you like go into different stores, but every time you come out, like the street is completely different. And so like to give that, <laughs> that disorienting feel of what it's like to be living here in this moment and also maybe getting renovated. Right. <laughs> So yeah, I think there's like definitely a lot of potential um, there. How do you document real life when real life's getting more like fiction each day? Headlines, breadlines blow my mind and now this deadline, eviction or pay. Rent! So there's just an article out from Now magazine uh, where they were talking about how much it costs to live in Toronto. Uh, and then the, there's like a coda to this brief essay precisely about uh, how artists make on average about $30,000, mm, which is mm -hmm. about 
uh, $25,000 short of what it costs to live in the city. Yeah, I'm uh, not surprised. And that one in five art. And this was put out by Toronto Arts Council. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's that's good on them for doing that study because oh, a lot of people so are, are citing it. Oh, you, you've been seeing it around. And then the other Yeah, thing a lot of people one... are like, did you see that report? <laughs> it's <Right>. dire. <laughs> it's freaking dire. <laughs> it just, yeah. I know, It's like, I think as a defense mechanism, you get to this point where you're like, oh, I'm going to stop repeating obvious, like obvious political mm -hmm. positions. Right. And then, but then with certain ones, I just find like, I have to keep repeating it. And this is one of them, but the, the, uh, it says one in five artists have been renovated and you are experiencing that. And uh, I've become a statistic. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it I was, feels there, not good. <laughs> there was an artist visiting Regina from Toronto that I was talking to over the weekend who was just talking about getting renovated, uh, in the fall <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's really bad well it happened to me too oh yeah yeah, and I yeah. took it to the labor to the to the board That's good. i forget its name now and lost oh yeah what was the grounds was it their kid I filled out my application poorly oh well i didn't lose actually i negotiated but i negotiated <laughs> right. from a weak position yeah yeah i felt like i lost <laughs> right i got several months rent free but i didn't have a kind of righteous vindication <laughs> Right. I don't right. <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, so you are saying you are an artist. You are you're now a, a statistic. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an artist um, and also, a statistic. <laughs> in that order. <laughs> in that order. <laughs> um, you work with Hand Eye Society, but you also uh, you also juggle many you you juggle many hats, and and you also work at uh, TIFF. Do you not? Yeah, it's on a really part-time basis. Um, but I've been—I actually started working for Hand Eye Society at exactly the same time as I started working for TIFF. Um, <laughs> and well, the whole reason that I—I I became part of Hand Eye Society so intimately is because I made my very first game through a workshop they ran uh, for women who had never made a game before right. called the Difference Engine Initiative, which was a partnership between Hand Eye Society and TIFF like a one-time thing that they like never repeated again, even though it was an extremely, in my opinion, uh, impactful program. And it was called TIFF Nexus. So it was basically TIFF trying to like dip their toes in this new media thing. And I don't know, I think they found it a little chilly, um, but the, fun <laughs> the funding kind of dried up and they also had, that's like a whole other thing, but they, had, they, they tried doing the interactive stuff for a bit and I think they're phasing it out slowly, which is a shame. But yeah, I've been with... TIFF since uh, 2011, which is uh, also when the Difference Engine initiative happened. So almost a decade. Um, and then I also have a freelance animation practice. So I used to do <laughs> this is not many people know that I, I do this, but I used to do like storyboarding and character animation for mostly kids television shows hmm. so like total drama island if anyone remembers that from like oh my gosh storyboard are you serious right yeah. now <laughs> and and also did some stuff for adult swim when, where i got very good at drawing bodily fluids <laughs> uh it was <laughs> really some really gross shows that i worked on uh, so i was doing that uh throughout the the last decade um a few teaching gigs here and there uh, but i've always had like three to five gigs going on at any given time. Uh, and I make about 40 K right. <laughs> generally speaking, which, uh, what you said about on average artists make 30 K I'm yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds about right. Damn. Yeah. Um, so when you started, uh, when you started doing stuff with hand eye society, uh, you, did you, it sounds like you weren't really a game or a, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a game artist yet, or you just started at the beginning of that uh, part of your practice? Oh, yeah. I, I had no idea that video games were going to become such a big part of my life at all. Um, I had graduated from Sheridan College, so I did four or five years of animation. So I was like, I'm either going to go for Disney or Pixar or whatever, or I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so I graduated and then didn't get a job right out of school. So I was just kind of in Toronto, um, not really knowing what my prospects were. I remember applying for a job at Staples at one point. <laughs> so I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I remember Googling 
video games Toronto because I wanted <laughs> I didn't really know anyone in the city and I was like I like video games and want to meet new people and stuff and so the first thing that came up was hand eye society and the call for applications to the difference engine initiative so i had no idea that that would completely change the trajectory of my life but that's that's how it happened that was because i didn't get i didn't get hired by disney pixar right out of the gate or staples or staples or or you didn't have to Yeah, I was. Um, it was really like between those choices, I was like, it's either going to be Disney, Pixar, or Staples, and I didn't get either of those, yeah. so I guess it's going to be video games. <laughs> I mean, that's real as an artist because very often you're either shooting for like these really, these really niche positions where it's like only one of this job exists, or <laughs> else you're a barista. Yeah, <laughs> those are your options. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so like dependent on which which public funding is going where this year. Yeah, like in the case of that uh, TIFF Hand Eye Society crossover that well, just disappeared. <laughs> what do you think appealed to you about video games as a medium to work in? Um, I'm trying to think of what was going through my head when I was like, yeah, making games as opposed to playing them would be really cool because those are two d- completely different activities as I would later find out. But I, I remember... Um, I remember playing a bunch of like classic Super Nintendo games in college. So I had like I had sort of like ROM hacks of these games. And I had always been been a huge uh player of weird video games. So I was really big into Kingdom of Loathing, which I don't know if either of you have heard of. No. It's no, but the it's, title is epic. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's basically it's so all the graphics are stick figures it's just stick figure drawings (laughs) and it's a browser-based rpg where you can like play with other players and it has its own economy but the whole thing is basically a parody of fantasy games and like it's just full of puns and weirdness and it it really looks like it was made by two guys in their basement which i think it was (laughs) um so i would play games like that (laughs) And uh, I, I played Earthbound for the first time because I never grew up with a Super Nintendo. I was right. an N64 kid, so I missed out on Earthbound. And that became just like one of my favorite games ever. And uh, I want to say that that probably influenced me to like try my hand at it because Kingdom of Loathing and games like Kingdom of Loathing and Earthbound, they're like very quirky and they look like deceptively simple because it's stick figures and it's like pixel art just little sprites bopping around the screen and i figured um if they're having this six-week workshop if they're if they're telling me that like i as a (laughs) non-game maker person can make a game in six weeks then i i guess i'll try it and um yeah it's like both easier and harder than it looks What are, uh, could you tell us about some of the game projects that you've worked on? I know that um, John and I met you through one of that f- through through one of your projects. So uh, that was that um, New Lex Plaza is how is that yes. a, the one? Okay, which that's how we met. Yeah, yeah. I which <laughs> like I don't know. If, <laughs> oh, I guess, I'll guess we'll go in chronological one. order. We'll get to that yeah. one in a bit. Um, <laughs> the game the game that I made during the Difference Engine Initiative. Uh, you can definitely tell an animator made it because the art is really good and then the rest of it is kind of <laughs> janky. Um, but it was about, like, it was a retelling of the of the Legend of Icarus, like the, yeah. the kid who's on the island with his genius inventor dad and the dad is like, we gotta get off this island and he makes them a pair of wax wings and then Icarus's wings melts uh, when he gets too close to the sun. And so my game was about just the first part of that story of like what it's like to be this teenage boy living on an island with your genius father who has a who has a heart attack and dies before the game even begins so you kind of emerge from your teenage boy basement and you find your dad's corpse outside and then you have to like piece together his notes and build a jetpack so you can escape the island and so it's really about that like sort of father-son relationship Um, so that was the first game I made. And then I went very much in a different direction because I got 
uh, I really fell in with the makerspace community. So for some reason, a lot of the the first friends that I made in the Toronto game scene were really involved in the makerspace community. So I would do collaborations with them. Um, I made a couple games with Nadine, Lesio, and uh, um, other associated friends, which were... They would have a digital component and a hardware component, so a lot of alternative controller games. Uh, we made one game together called Long Time Coming that was a visual novel where you've just cheated on your boyfriend and you have to lie your way through an evening with him, but you also have to throw knives at the screen <laughs> to make it work. So we had a, a special board hooked up to a makey-makey and had tinfoil in it, so you actually had to throw knives in order to simulate button presses. And it was sort of a, we wanted to, cause Nadine was like, I have this knife throwing mechanic that I really want to figure out, uh, to attach it to a game, but I don't want it to be a typical, like you're throwing knives and in the game, you're also throwing knives. Right. Like she didn't want that like one-to-one violent interpretation. So it's like, okay, what if the, what if it's a metaphor for your emotional state of trying not to screw up and, bust out with the fact that you like slept with your boss and cheated on your boyfriend and you're <laughs> you might you might screw up and miss because you're feeling so guilty about it um but you're trying to aim for like oh i didn't answer my phone because i was in the ttc tunnel and the train got stuck <laughs> like, <laughs> so it was it was all stuff like that and um it's a it's very, very hard Freudian <laughs> metaphor the ttc and the train getting stuck. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um that was a very hard game to show in public. No shit. <laughs> we, someone called the cops on us <laughs> at, at in one venue. We were, I think, we were at the Gladstone or something, and the cops came up and like made a beeline right for us. So they must have heard there was a game where you throw knives upstairs. <laughs> Unfortunately, we we were already packing up. So of course that happened at the Gladstone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the- that sounds so awesome. I love the unwieldiness of that, but also how integral the unwieldiness is to the concept of the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It just wouldn't be the same without without the knife throwing part. Um, wow. And we we had also jammed on another game later, like years later, where uh, it was about Toronto's housing crisis and it utilized dog shock collars. So you had to like put your put the dog shot collars on your arm and it was basically Twister. So it was like we were trying to combine the mechanics of Twister, like Twister as a metaphor for real estate, because you're like taking up spaces on the grid. Um, But then we found out that was too physically painful, like combining (laughs) combining the pain of being 30 something or 40 something years old trying to play Twister, plus getting electrocuted (laughs) like every Five ten minutes, like it was just too much. So we we changed it to like a more chess like <laughs> um, experience. <laughs> so that's. Did you still get electrocuted? Yeah, we we still. I think we like for play testing. We kind of no, we did play test it with the electrocution. Um, so yeah, we still we kept that part in because we wanted we were trying to utilize pain, physical pain, as a game mechanic, um, and. Uh, Nadine is is really active in the um, in like tenant rights kind right. of like she's actually a mod on the um, Ontario tenants rights uh, Facebook group, which is a super helpful resource. Um, so she's like she was already um, much more knowledgeable about that stuff than I was. I kind of like took my position for granted. I was like, I'm never gonna get evicted. My <laughs> landlords like me and. Well, <laughs> here we are. When we were in Berlin. Wow. Now, now the dog shot collar is on my arm. <laughs> Another friendship broken by class. Yeah. When we were in Berlin, there was a game at the computer spiel that was pain based that John played. What do you remember that game, John? Yeah, I, play, I made him play it. I don't want people to. keep telling me about <laughs> yeah, it. I was like, no, uh, you will. Because when I tell them it was about like the electrocution, they're like, this is the one they yeah, they're up. like computer spiel and. But it had multiple types of pain, did it? Yeah, it started with a sm- like it started with electrocution, and then it would also there was a like a a small plastic whip as well as <laughs> yeah, right. uh, one heat a, he- a heater. Yes. Oh, heater. Heater to so, the fucking Germans. Uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> yes. we only got to like the it, we just 
started. No, as soon as I felt any pain at all, I quit. (laughs) Oh, I thought you went far. I thought you went far. No, 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 no. no. It was like five seconds. And Kat was winning immediately. Yeah, I I actually, I was She was just doing well at Pong. She was was just playing Pong well. (laughs) And I beat him. So, uh, and so the game was very short. But um, yeah, pain as a mechanic is very interesting. They um, it's underutilized they made in my waivers. opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, before and they also clean off. Of course, they like clean off the machine. It has like a big glass. Uh, well, there's like sensors for your hands right. to deliver the That's sensations good. and the heat. But um, they also it was just funny to see I, the care. I only want to play video games to make me feel good. <laughs> What, what, that makes me why? feel pleasure. <laughs> why would you want such a thing? No hope for the village, no hope for the village. The merchants in a mist and with a barrel fist. He's covered every surface. He's slapped up a portrait. And yes, it is his own. He's gonna take your home. Have you seen well, th- those are probably the most out there ones for sure. <laughs> Uh, we also made a game that um, we showcased at Indiecade Night Games, um, I think in 2015, and it was called Punk Prism Power, which you can actually look up. I think we we had a website just for documentation of the game at uh, punkprismpower.com, and it was a magical girl game where we fabricated weapons. We had a, a magical scepter. Uh, which is pretty straightforward. And then we had a chainsaw with hearts for blades as the other weapon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and they, Nadine and um, Lee Wilkins uh, and Alicia Contestabile, there was a, a bunch of folks working on it. Maggie McLean uh, did the music. Um, uh, so it was really a group effort. And that was when I was like kind of getting into the groove of learning how to program in Unity. Um, but there was gyroscopes in the, in the weapons. So we kind of basically made our own super fancy magical girl, uh, Wii controllers and they could like kind of simulate different attacks. And that was much more of a a spectacle game. Like there wasn't really any sort of like political messaging or anything that was more just like a fun, uh, spectacle party game, uh, to showcase out in a parking lot. Well, the part, the politics are in the process, it seems like. It's not necessarily in the content. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the fact that it was like, it was pretty much like all women, non-binary people working on it. And the, the we wanted to, to elevate the magical girl um, theme as being really badass, like bad, badass magical girls. Like this is the sort of content that we would like to see more of in the world. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, so that was that one. <laughs> uh, I did a, a much more experimental work that was based around it was basically a parody of the technological singularity so that that whole rapture of the nerds idea of like we're all (laughs) we're all gonna get so technologically advanced that we're just gonna become a hive mind and live in the cloud so it was really ragging on that concept super hard and that was the brainchild of hannah epstein which is a a friend of mine that went through the difference engine initiative the second one that i actually co-coordinated um so she came out of that program and then we ended up being collaborators with another person, Alex Leach, uh, who's a very close friend of mine to this day. Um, so yeah, that whole, that a lot of interesting things came out of that program and this project Zborg, which was spelled really awkwardly, um, was one of those projects. And so it was a, a dual screened game. So there was two screens and it was basically the, the hive mind technological God is quizzing you on your whether or not you're worthy of being sucked up into the <laughs> into the singularity like basically whether you're worthy of being raptured up into this into this cloud um thing uh uploaded and we put it in the back of a van and it invited people and then we would you would go in and we'd shut the van doors behind you so you'd be in this very like dark confessional space um and that we showcased that a couple places Probably the most interesting one was at Montreal Sight and Sound because there was a lot of interesting characters right. that that came to play it, and including kids, which was really awkward because <laughs> the van was just this like plain gray van, and these kids, oh, no. these, <laughs> these <laughs> and we're like hurting these kids, and it's like not a child. Yeah. You go. Your mind is gonna get uploaded. <laughs> 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 Plus, we're gonna give you candy. 
we, there was there was no candy it is it's not a game for kids either like there's references to sperm and stuff right. in it like bodily fluids because it's really trying to make you uncomfortable about and your you're body you're really good at drawing bodily fluids yeah. so we can, <laughs> something i'm struck by is um the how uh physical your video games are whether it's like the the gyroscopic controls or the mechanics that involve like physical movement there's and there's lots of like uh considerations that i might file more with like an installation practice than with a video game practice. yeah definitely um you seem to keep being drawn to that what's that about um that's a good question because i mean part of it does have to do with the fact that a lot of the friends i made were already part of that community like physical installations True. um hardware hacking right. makerspace stuff and if it weren't for them, I don't think it would have even occurred to me to make games that right. utilize that. But since they were, they didn't have as much background or interest in game design, whenever we collaborated, it would inevitably, inevitably be some hybrid of of uh, sort of pure digital screen-based stuff. But then you would also have this like bizarre physical component. And then Hannah, who came up with Seaborg, was kind of like the probably had the most artsy background of us all like um i don't even know how to describe it she was she was her the whole game was based kind of around the like donna haraway's cyborg feminist theory which we all know about and plus like the technological singularity stuff so i learned a lot from her about like actually being critical about the stuff that i was making because right. prior to that i was like i come from a cartoon background like i came from a school where they're like you were gonna make funny animals talk and you're gonna like it <laughs> that was that was like there wasn't a lot of theory <laughs> there was no theory at at sheridan with that program uh but through her then i kind of learned more about um that aspect of it and like there were she also brought like an element of performance art to right. it as well so when we were doing this van installation she would make these cardboard signs that would say things like free mind upload. And then we would all wear these weird costumes. Like I had a robot head that I had gotten in a garage sale and just had this like schoolgirl uniform, but a robot head and like a plastic laser gun. Right. And we just had all these like personas that we made up and then we would just stand out on the street and try to solicit people to, to upload their minds. Um, as if it was like a religious thing. Like we're we're basically missionaries of the technological singularity. So we had had to act the part. But does your friend Hannah come from like a critical? Like if she's looking at uh, Haraway, uh, and is um, she must be looking critically at the singularity? Like is this mostly yeah. through the lens of Kurzweil? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was she was definitely like like this guy like basically criticizing his his way of of seeing the singularity yeah, and like this consciousness is, this is like, software. Body yeah. And really taking him down a peg because right. he had kind of like this very false prophet thing going on. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, snake oil con man yeah. aspect. So we were really trying to like draw out that. So that's kind of where like, you know, bringing people to the back of a van and trying to like kind of all <laughs> trick you, you trick you into having this experience yeah. with our weird costumes and stuff like it was all kind of like that was kind of where our heads were at um when we were putting together the project working on it was so much fun though like talking about these ideas with her was a lot of fun yeah yeah Yeah, uh, the video game art that you're making has a super strong, uh, like, installation and performance component to it, which very much um, demonstrates it's like art bona fide, the, the, like, sort of art side bona fide of them, whereas a lot, like, some, the, especially with the sorts of, like, video games that I've, that I've been, like, trying to make recently, I feel like, I'm always thinking of the distribution platforms mm. as, as this like overarching like uh, design constraint for the thing I have to make where I have to design it something to make it work on an iPhone um, or I have to design something uh, to make it uh, uploadable to the internet and then downloadable to someone else's computer. Um, but it's that sort of constrains the amount that it can be art. And I'm realizing that, uh, um, finding novel ways to present the video games like you've done in all these projects <laughs> like makes it a lot easier to call it art. 
But I think you had like a lot of as uh, all the stuff you were doing with Tough Guy Mountain definitely touched on aspects of like combining video games and performance and um, installation and all that, I think. Yeah, definitely how we got into it. Um, it's funny how you, but video games or I feel like there's this uh, commercial siren song that video games sing because they are such a huge commercial industry that one ends up just thinking of them in a commercial mindset. And I feel like I, I do that sometimes. Well, uh, also, if you watch five years worth of GDC Vault talks, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to start Vault. changing your mind. Oh, always. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, uh, working as Tough Guy Mountain, uh, that's how we kind of came um, to your work, Sagan, yeah, right. through, uh, through um, your project New Lux Plaza, where we sort of had um, an intersection of interests bring us together. Yeah, and now I remember how that came about because I was I had just gotten some grant money to work on this project called Welcome to New Lux Plaza and it was really Woo! inspired by the whole vaporwave movement that kind of started in the early 2010s and then kind of fizzled out but lives on in weird ways like very much like Yodorowsky's Dune where it just kind of seeped into the in the into the everyone's consciousness and to the point where like nobody remembers where it originated from um so that's <laughs> so that was kind of and then i was i think i don't remember how i stumbled across tough guy mountain but i was looking at the visual aesthetics of the stuff that was on the site and being like this is very vaporwave yeah. to me and mm -hmm. not just in the way that it looks but like the general intent of what it's trying to do and then i think yeah that's when i reached out and was like hey do you want to help out on this video game thing which i don't think really that collaboration never went uh never really came together because uh for various reasons related to the the how i approach making that project it was more to do with my own personal limitations of trying to make a game like that kind of a game um but i'm i'm really glad that we were able to connect uh through that yeah definitely both in uh problem i i just we we also came up uh, we were going to art school when Vaporwave became a thing. So I feel like it was <laughs> both a thing where it's like, oh, this is the sort of content that we're already interested in making work about. Um, but then Vaporwave also being this very, just a very uh, slick and, and stylish. Uh, oh, like, certainly in like 2014 or 2013 yeah. or whenever it was. That <laughs> like it was, a, it was a, a nice way of thinking about like uh, critique of capitalism through um through amplifying its aesthetics in these different ways. It just, yeah, it's very, we were definitely influenced by it as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, so the, so the project was supposed to be, uh, it was basically a Star Fox, a Star Fox 64 clone with a vaporwave aesthetic. And also, I, I think I made the mistake of trying to attach a narrative to it. So it, it mm -hmm. was a very, it was, I think, a very Tough Guy Mountain-esque narrative where you're 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 piloting this little pink spaceship but you're also like this lowly intern for a mega corporation that's trying to do this sort of takeover of another corporation and you're flying through this endless terrible futuristic virtual mall so it's like as if <laughs> it's like as if Am as if amazon was a like a, a place that you could go through spatially but also a, with a vaporwave <laughs> look and feel to it. Um, so I had all these, it was very collage-y, so maybe at some point I'll be able to like have a build that we could play on the show at some point, because I think, be cool. yeah, I think it would be ripe for discussion because a, a lot of consideration went into how it looked and played and feel and felt, um, but at, at a certain point I just got burnt out on working on it because it, it was also the first time I had tried to program um a project of that scale and i think i tried way too hard to make it an actual video game with working physics and like i tried to to put all this stuff in it that like you know you scope creep um basically happened as it does with many game projects and i was just like this is run its course and i have gotten what i needed to get out of this project and i i got a keynote a good keynote lecture out of it like i had this i was invited to speak at uh, different games um, nice. one year and do the keynote and I did it on 
uh, vaporwave and contrasting to cyberpunk and where my work fit in um, with that whole thing. And so I got a lot of good stuff out of it. But then as a project, I think it was a noble failure. (laughs) (laughs) And it was supposed to involve uh, the the part of it that I, I still would love to shoot. Like maybe I'll make a weird video art installation out of the pieces that were made um because i really wanted ian soder from the brandscape to play a, a centaur <laughs> so it was like a, a <laughs> he would be well cast yeah he was he, he was, was well oh cast. my god he, he was a centaur with sunglasses and a business suit so he was like a Beautiful. business centaur with and he had a, a briefcase and so the whole point of the game is you he he's sort of your supervisor. That really, really must happen now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've you can't just like, take I've that literally out of the universe after putting it into it. <laughs> yes. I've literally wanted oh Ian goodness. to play a centaur in something for like a decade. So, so I would love this. He 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 opened so I, I was like I had I was like maybe I'll go to Value Village and get a briefcase and spray paint it bright blue because the briefcase needs to be bright blue for whatever reason. And he like opens it up and there's a a 3D pizza spinning inside of it, and you have to click the pizza and be like, "I'm I'm starting the mission now." And then yes. you deliver the pizza to the CEO of this rival corporation, and then it turns out the pizza has a virus inside of it. So, um, it was supposed to be like, intern, deliver this in- encrypted pizza to the the this other guy, but then it turns out to be a virus and it's a hostile takeover, and you're just a pawn in this huge corporate scheme that you had no idea about. Um, and they promised you a promotion, so you're going to do it. But in the end, they just give you like a mug that says number one intern or something. <laughs> it's like campy so them... William Gibson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Question. Uh, does the centaur wear suit and tie? And how does he, if so, how does he wear his pants? He he does not have pants. It's just the, the blazer and the tie. <laughs> <laughs> on the on the okay, human right. part, and then the rest of it is literally just so. Uh, oh, of horses don't wear suits. Everybody knows the center is a mythological mullet. <laughs> uh, I, I have a mock up of the centaur that I pieced together from That's like photos. Be the episode art. I you're... was just gonna say. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll dig it up. Like, it'll force me to like go find it because it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, I um, that what that makes me think of, and in the context of. Uh, all of the art game projects that you worked on is that like art games are so well suited to these sort of like installation performance events, which is what we've found as well. And then so much more challenging uh, to be so much more challenging to produce the video game as such that we like, um, that we, as we understand as like the, they exist as these commercial products that we download onto our machines where they just take so much time that, and no artist has the, like the time to make a full one. So it seems like I know that I've experienced it with most of my projects as well, where scope creep just ends up, uh, crushing, you get crushed under the weight of that. And it's interesting how, like, as an art form, it's sort of, it's sort of limited by that because of how much work and the type of work that they take to make. Yeah. Um, but, but then it's so, so therefore it's so much more appropriate to find the context that you found uh, or finding context in performance venues or installation to present them through because that keeps the scope so manageable relatively or could. Yeah, because you have that extra dimension dimensionality of the physical world that you can bring to it. And if you're doing something performance-based or with a performance component, then you also have, like, you're bringing yourself to it and there's less work involved in a certain degree because then I just show up and then I do my thing alongside the game and I don't have to hard code all of that using using <laughs> ones and zeros which when you think about it that way is a ridiculous proposition um <laughs> and um even with the more lighthearted games like punk prism power we just like didn't have to bother making a tutorial screen or whatever because i would just be there right. in person and i could tell i could just tell the person here's how you do the thing and that's not how you want like a self-contained app or a digital game to work like everything has to be in that one package um which i think really frustrated me when working on new lux plaza is the amount of information and like the how i paced things was very much it seemed to be i was like always fighting the interface um and like wrestling with unity to try and get it the way that i wanted so that was a lesson for me so 
because with New Lux Plaza, I was trying to make a more self-contained digital product, right. as you say, where like, because I was I was actually tired of being unable to show, uh, you know, something like Punk Prism Power or the knife throwing game. Like there's yeah. a very limited audience yeah. and it's very temporal, very temporally limited. So I was like, oh, I, I would love to make something a little more traditional. That's just a digital game that hypothetically millions of people could download. Uh, and that turned out to be super hard. So oh, I have shit. to kind of rethink my process here. I, I, I would like to to keep picking at that but i think i know my limitations a lot more it when it like comes to a the team it's like a movie it's like I, yeah. I know very little about video game production but it, like the more i learn about it it seems like you can't like it's not like ma even making a solo record or writing a novel or something like that like you need to be yeah you need to work on a team yeah and it's, there there's this sort of mythos around the people that don't have a team it's literally just like the one guy that like right. it's it's almost always a guy stardew valley right didn't you guys say stardew valley oh yes oh, that's yeah. what you mentioned yeah. before yeah it's but it is interesting john began to john pointed to this a little bit about how it, your work involving the performative components the alternative inter interfaces is is more conducive to the, the artiness of the work, but it also is more conducive to resisting um, the market. Right? Oh, absolutely. And Which to me bespeaks a certain value. Like I'm like, <laughs> I, fuck I yeah. Think so. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely agree. And it's why, um, so we mentioned GDC before. I don't know if you know what that is. Only like, through them. Yeah, They're the, talking about their plans to go. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's like just a big, it's a big industry conference basically. Sounds um, so fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gotta wipe the sarcasm off the mic. <laughs> it's oozing everywhere. Um, so, so GDC is like, yeah, very industry oriented, very commercial oriented. Even even the indie games that they showcase have a commercial viability to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, but they do have one area of the showcase floor that's dedicated to alternative controllers. Uh, and I, that's that my favorite sick. part of the yeah. show because nothing there will ever make any yeah. money. <laughs> and the closest we ever got to, to seeing, you know, what the commercial markets interest in this stuff might be, uh, it's, it's toys, of course, like, yeah. you know, try the toy industry is like, maybe there's something here. So, uh, we, we, I think we submitted punk prism power to uh, alt controller GDC. It didn't get in for whatever reason, um, but we were invited to the the party that Mattel hosted for the alternative <laughs> controller creators, <laughs> and they were like very eager to hear our pitches or our like ideas of games that used hardware because they were like, yeah, the toy industry is just so stagnant, <laughs> and yeah. we're we're looking for something fresh and new, and so we're like showing them our little video that we took of Indiecade. Uh, at Indicate of Punk Prism Power and just like with kind of like you, you know you get that because they're paying for all the drinks you're like oh wouldn't wow that would be quite a story if Mattel like picked up our, yeah. our weird magical punk magical girl game and like made toys out of it um, and so there is like that that that's the closest that we've ever gotten to like the allure the industry allure uh, of GDC um, but for the most part I'm very glad that most of it is like, here's a vacuum that can suck up colors. Yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> this is, here's a rabbit ear TV set and you solve puzzles by smacking it. it does, but there is like a certain gap there. Um, it's a game that seems to be growing in popularity right now is one, or maybe it's been around, it's called Let's Dance. It's different than uh, Dance Dance Revolution in that like, you basically have a baton. Okay. And you and it hooks up right. to YouTube videos. Uh, uh or anyway, maybe people just do screen caps of YouTube videos. But like <laughs> so that already people. seems exhausting. Well, but the kids like it a <laughs> yeah, lot. Yeah, And then that's they terrifying. and then you can dance to like Lady Gaga or something right. like that. But it is like a dopey little simple thing and it is like a <laughs> <laughs> ben, ben was complaining to me about being the Joe Biden of the podcast, and this is a very good Joe Biden moment. <laughs> this fucking youngsters dance to Lady Gaga. I just can't understand it. <laughs> true. Okay, sorry. True. Continue. No, no. I, I'm, I've become too self-reflexive. I'm an internalized <laughs> va vacuum now. Not that they don't want to help. They don't want. They don't know quite what to do. 
play the radio, make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. There's Thank so you, much we, no, I'm, I'm going to go like the rest of them do, twice over, okay? Yeah, on this note of talking about yeah the market, um, the marketing games, uh, we you were you were the moderator of last year's Mayworks panel um, uh, that happened at Toronto Media Arts Center uh, Mayworks Labor Festival. Uh, ha- did uh, their night sh- it was night shifts yes. was the was the like th- theme, yeah. and then there was a specific video games. Uh, and labor like event that we participated in and Sagan was the moderator uh, of a panel there a panel and the whole event I think being called unfeeling capitalism and that uh, that the whole conversation of um, labor rights for the workers of the game industry um, like game workers unite being present there uh, the the games that were being shown all having a particular um, uh, political or uh, or perhaps a labor po- labor politics message to it. Uh, how, I mean, there was a huge. I thought there was really great turnout for that event. Um, and it has this been like something that, uh, like you've seen increase in in the past couple of years? Like, what uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> oh boy, jeez, <laughs> oh, uh, so many thoughts. I think it helps that I was recently interviewed by Ryan Hayes for the labor magazine Time Out about these exact issues. So some of it is a little bit fresh in my mind. Um, so my, my I don't have the strongest background when it comes to labor politics. And it it's actually thanks to Game Workers Unite and that whole uh, surge of interest in that topic um, that I actually started to, to do more research into it. Um, because you... If you're doing stuff with art and games and then something like this comes along that's very explicitly political and tied uh to the to the way games are made and looking at that critically um I think it was like pretty hard to ignore um so yeah there's just like so crunch crunch is sort of the big keyword when it comes whenever anyone thinks of talking about labor and games crunch is, has kind of been the most um the biggest symptom of whatever is wrong with the games industry with regards to to labor i mean i think i hate to say that I, it doesn't seem to have changed that much from conversations that were i mean i think there's definitely more awareness of it um but stuff like you know the rockstar wives controversy where like all the spouses of Rockstar employees had to like write letters to the company and being like, "Can you release our husbands from your hellhole of a studio?" <laughs> That's like an extra layer of disgusting because of the heteronormativity. Woven yeah, exactly. Yes. The Rockstar wives, like everything about this, is so many layers of wrong. Uh, I think. And then someone was like, "Are you talking about the Rockstar spouses that happened in this year?" and I was like, no, is there like two instances of this happening? Because, yeah, it's just like that bad. Um, and so that that stuff was has always been a problem. And then in terms of like why it continues to be a problem, uh, I think it's very, it's like super complicated. But one thing I talked to Ryan Hayes about was uh, this concept that came up at a very interesting conference that I got invited to called Indie Interfaces, uh, which is a, actually an academic um, initiative uh, that's specifically about sustainability in indie game practices. So there was this whole, the, there was this term that um, someone mentioned about the privileged precariat, which I thought was super interesting because it's kind of like people who make games, a lot of them are in precarious labor situations, but they're also privileged in the sense that like, you're not working in a mine, you know, you're not like in a sort of job position that's like physically dangerous. You have, if you're making games, then you're probably already at a, like a certain level of being able to um, survive 
mm-hmm. uh, in in the economy, um, which is like obviously not true for everyone, but generally true because you of all the things that you need in order to make a game like a computer and the internet and co- some ability to like code cultural things. Cultural context. Yeah, cultural context. Like that super came up when I visited the game scene in um, South Africa and everyone was saying, yeah, the game scene here is, is very different and still quite small, but also very different because nobody here grew up with a console. Right. We all have phones. So the mobile industry is much, much bigger and like nobody has the background of like growing up with a Super Nintendo um, or a PlayStation. Right. So so there's whole that whole thing. Um, so and then I and then I li- sort of linked that to a conversation I had with some folks that came out to a Game Workers Unite event. It might have even been the Mayworks one, but they worked. They were sort of senior designers at um, a triple a local triple A studio. And I was kind of asking them, like, you know, where are all the QA people? Where are all the non-senior folks uh, who could really benefit from this conversation? And that kind of led into the fact of, like, uh, you know, generally the people who could most benefit from the conversation are also the most disenfranchised in the entire company because they're not organized. They don't want to lose what little job security that they probably have. Um and the whole thing is just like try and claw your way through the top until you're in a position to like not have to worry about it anymore. Um, So not a lot of incentive for collective action. Um, uh, Whenever I do bring up unions or labor politics with people who don't have already, don't already have a political mindset. They're just like, I don't know. I I make enough and they treat me. Okay. Like there's not, (laughs) and it's like, yeah, you work at a triple a gaming studio and it's, could probably be worse i guess and it's hard to it's really hard to like get them jazzed about the idea of a union um when they're not already like you know they're not starving in the streets they're not really wanting for anything materialistically so i find it difficult to to frame the conversation um with with uh, uh in that context so that's something that like I'm interested in, 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 in how to frame the conversation. So it's like, maybe a little more accessible, um, to folks. Do you have anything that you want to plug any events coming up or any things coming out or any? Um, I mean, I, I can say, I guess that this, uh, I can go on the record and say that this will be my last year, uh, as the executive director of hand eye society. Damn. So all the stuff that we've talked about is kind of leading up to, um, in my i guess this would be my ninth year this would be my last year of being involved with hand eye which is a really really long time uh so i'm gonna be handing off the organization uh and trying to work on my own artistic practice um which will hopefully include games but also um i've been getting a lot into like science fiction writing um and like incorporating that into my practice so there's going to be a lot more of that a lot more words (laughs) um and uh hand eye society is is just it'll be going through um basically like third generation of of staff which is really amazing uh, that we've been able to like make it this far and thanks very much uh to the the comparatively generous amount of Canadian government funding that exists for the arts. Um, it's not as healthy as it could be. Uh, I don't think, but compared to a lot of other places, um, that I visited, I think we have it relatively good. Right. Yeah. Which I don't know. That's yeah. That's like a whole other conversation. (laughs) Um, Where can people find you if they want to keep up with you in your work or, uh, probably Twitter. I think I'm the most active um, on Twitter in terms of just like updating things that I've been working on. Um, Hand Eye Society is is pretty easily searchable, and Hand Eye Society's on Twitter has its own website. Um, I also have a website that hasn't been updated in a really long time, but it has Punk Prism Power and some other uh, older projects that I've worked on on there. So that's just SaganYi.com, and uh, same with Twitter. It's just at SaganYi. Nice, cool. Yeah. Awesome. That was so entertaining. Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm so me. excited to see your mock-up of, <laughs> of Centaur? Centaur Ian. Yes. <laughs>